Hey folks, welcome back to the Dark Horse Podcast live stream 157 Q&A segment. We are ready to go. We've got uh, we got a cat and we've got a spare cat. No, we got two cats and we need two more spares. Ah, that's probably true. Yeah. Yep. All right, we are going to do what I always forget to say in the t- in the first hour. Start with a question from the Discord server this week, which they choose and send to us. And I had been hoping, having received this this morning, to look into it a little bit, and I didn't have time. Uh, so we're going to riff <clears throat> somewhat uninformedly. Uninfo- oh, wow, working without a net. Never shows up. She never shows. Yeah. Yeah. Question from the Discord. About the safety of Stevia. WebMD says that the FDA has only approved the purified form, steviocide, as safe. WebMD concludes, quote, if you see whole stevia leaves or crude stevia extracts at your local natural food store, don't buy them. But the article also says that people in South America and Asia have been using the leaves for many years. Any thoughts? Love you guys. Um, So I wanted to just find a good history of... um, Yep. Of the use, and I had just pulled up an article published in 2010 in the International Journal of Food Sciences and Nutrition called Stevia, Stevia Rabadiana, which is the scientific name, a biosweetener, a review. Uh, but the abstract is weird enough, no, not the abstract, the introduction, um, talking about how it's um, in widespread cultivation in several Indian states but I know separately that it's a it's a neotropical plant. It's um, it doesn't grow in the paleotropic. Stevia is neotropical. Yeah, it's para, it's in the in, in Paraguay and Brazil is where it grows. Not the family. Uh, Aster, Asteraceae. Mm. So daisies again, right? Asters or daisies? I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I'm gonna look that up because that's what we need to know. That is what we need to know. Right. Okay. Yeah. Except my computer is saying no, you don't. Can't believe this. Um, the number of crashes this machine has experienced um, lately is remarkable. Um, yeah, it's gigantic. So Asteraceae is also, um, yeah, uh, Compositae. 32,000 known species of flowering plants, uh, including, yes, daisies, asters, sunflowers, the whole thing. Basically, and most of the things that you can think of is really symmetric at the flower level. Stevia is Stevia's a, it's not a tree. Woody shrub that can reach 80 centimeters in height when it is fully matured. So, you know, two feet-ish. Uh, the Stevia genus comprises at least 110 species, but there may be as many as 300. Its habitat, oh, its habitat extends from the southwestern United States to the Brazilian highlands. I think it's mostly out of Brazil and Paraguay, though. The uh, Guarani people um, have been using it uh, sort of as a sweetener and maybe even medicinally for a long time. Uh, and when you initially uh, began... I'm literally just reading this. You were talking about populations that have a history of using well, leaves. Who are they? The, intra- the Guarani, as I just said. Right. That's the only population you mentioned? Yeah. Well, the reason that I'm not sure that this first uh, you know, scientific paper that I have come up with is the best source here, even though it's a, you know, it's a review. Um, well, I guess the, so the authors are Indian. The authors are working out of India. So that may be why in the introduction, there is a sentence about the successful cultivation in recent years in many areas of the Indian states of Rajasthan, Maharashtra, 
Carella and Orissa. Got um, so, so otherwise, otherwise that sentence is like, well, why are why are we focused there? That's confusing. It seems like it's pantropical in distribution when it's not. But I, th- I think actually having just realized that the authors are Indian, that's probably why. Okay. And, and you know, they're. Yeah. So I, I I think we know enough to respond basically. Yes. Now we do. Yes. Yep. Um. I mean, I'm I'm learning this as I'm talking to you guys. Um. I guess. Oh, people in Japan have been using it. Um, people in Japan have been using it for how long? Are we talking a modern phenomenon? Because that's really what this hinges on. Hard to tell. Um, I mean, it's it's just it doesn't grow there, so it's it's relatively in the use of. Um, yeah, there. I see the papers I want to find, but I don't have time to do okay, that. Okay, so. Oh, it is medicinally used in Brazil and Paraguay um, as a natural control for diabetes because it tastes sweet, but it doesn't, I don't remember exactly what it doesn't do, but it doesn't, your body doesn't regard it as sugar, so it doesn't process it yeah, like sugar. Yeah, you don't sugar. metabolize it as a sugar. Um, and apparently it's also got like a, a bitter, there's a, there's a bitter note um, that is the thing that most people will recognize um, if you just try to replace stevia or sugar with stevia. Yeah. So the bitter note. Uh, indicates possible toxicity. Yep. Uh, it is very unusual for a plant to be able to create the sensation of sweetness without providing sugar because yep. we are attuned to that trick um, after many millions of years of evolution. So the question is, it sounds like we've got a common... Uh, scientific nonsense reversal of the precautionary principle. By where, WebMD? Yeah. Of course. Where that's what they always do. They yeah. are going to argue that the pure version is safe and don't touch anything that isn't. Because, of course, how can they say, you know, if you've got yeah. some complex plant that has many compounds and they haven't studied them, so yeah. they're, what they're going to tell you is avoid that. Well, I mean, also it's leaves, right? So, you know, the plant doesn't want you eating it. Right. It's not like well, it's a fruit. And um, you know, maybe you're not why... the intended disperser, but you know it is. It was created by the plant to be eaten, whereas leaves, no plant makes leaves in order to be eaten. Well, I, I do want to know why this plant is putting out a signal. Yeah. Assuming it's a secondary uh, compound, mm-hmm. it's putting out a signal that many creatures will take to be an indication of value. So there's a question mark there. But yeah, and the, I got basic, nothing, nothing of the natural history in this. The basic question hinges on the following. You've got a population with a long-standing relationship with this plant. Do they consume it? If they're consuming it just as a medicine, which it sounds like they're not, but if they're consuming it just as a medicine, then that doesn't tell you that it's safe because medicines are toxins that are titrated in order to make a benefit in the case of somebody who has a defect. Mostly um, it's a dietary uh, additive rather than medicine, I think, in many places where it's being used. Right. I'm not talking about where it's being used. I'm talking about the only indication that we would have about safety would be that there's somebody with a long-standing history. And so a population that has a long-standing history, the question is, are they using it as a medicine? Are they using it in some other capacity? Because we could infer something about safety from that. If they're using it as a medicine, then it may be that they have protocols and that is protecting us from protecting them from toxicity and that we are borrowing it for some purpose that it has not been established to be safe by uh, the long-standing use of it. I've got one little bit here. 
The traditional method of use by the Paraguayan Guarani Indians was to dry the leaves and to use them to sweeten tea and medicines or to chew the leaves as a sweet treat. Stevia was regularly used in drinks many times a day, not just occasionally, with no side effects. Okay, so that, the use that, of dried leaves, et cetera, et cetera. So, and this is a study from 1991 that um, is looking... Um, I don't have the study in front of me, but the title of it is... Uh, well, it's in, I, I was hoping it was going to be an anthropological study. Uh, it's not. It's in chemical abstracts. Effective technological procedures on the composition of volatile substances in Stevia rubidiana. But it sounds like they did a little bit of anthropological looking as well. So if it's true that this was used in a general way that did not have to do with medicinal use, then they are using it safely almost certainly. Mm-hmm. That does not mean that it is safe for others. You could have, for example, you know, populations differ in how good they are at breaking down lactose sugars. They vary in how good they are at breaking down alcohol. And so it could be that this population has a long enough standing history or that populations in this part of the world in general have some ability to metabolize something that others don't. So it's not perfectly safe. But I would say the chances that if these folks have a long-standing relationship with it, that it is safe to consume in moderation, even in its not pure form, is pretty high. Yeah. Um, and so I, I have a claim here um, that um, the Guarani have been using it for at least many hundreds of years as a, as a sweetener. Yeah. So that seems a little short, but it may be that that's as, only as far back as they could ascertain yeah. um, that they were using it. But uh, anyway, I would say... Uh, if I had to guess, chances are pretty good that it's safe, and chances are pretty good that it means nothing that the safety of the purified form has been established, because for one thing, what they almost certainly did not do is look into the long-term effect of the thing. So their whole sense that it's safe is about them having looked for a kind of danger and apparently not found it, and undoubtedly, in order to make the experiment um, easier, they used the purified form because then they knew exactly what they were studying. But basically I would say they are giving you a warning based on not having information about something that you can infer based on uh, other evidence, which is a longstanding relationship between a population and this plant and not at a medicinal level. Yeah. I guess I would just, I would add um, the longstanding relationship with the, the people who live where this plant grows natively uh, and their use of it in their diet on an apparently very regular basis uh, suggests relative safety with two caveats, I would say. The one that you've made, which is that um, like, lacking alcohol de- like lacking alcohol dehydrogenase in East Asian populations uh, makes alcohol a trickier situation uh, for people from those populations, uh, there might be some specific adaptation to... Uh, you know, taken apart something in stevia that the rest of us don't have. Yeah. So that's one thing. Neither of us have any idea if that's true. Don't know. Um, and then the other thing is just, uh, you know, a caution about something that tricks the system so extraordinarily and is, you know, so much sweeter. I, I, now I've, I've taken it down, but I, it's like, you know, 10 to 20 times. This is, you know, we're talking an order of magnitude and higher level of sweetness, and I don't know what the measure of sweetness is, but, uh, you know, sugar isn't good for us. And uh, we've, you know, 
humans have eaten a lot of fruit over the years. And so, you know, we, we know what sweet is and, and, you know, and honey too, and, and we pursue it. Uh, so I am, I am skeptical of any artificial sweeteners, less so of ones um, that are growing in a place where the people who live there have been using it for hundreds of years. But still, there's something in me that says, what, you know, what is that trick of the, you know, of the palate doing exactly and what other consequences might there be? Especially if there's a bitter note. Right. Which tends to be a proxy for a toxin of some kind. Right. Um, I would add another caveat, which is um, you will, of course, have no idea when this is mass produced, in what way it's mass produced, and what you may be encountering in, you know, in terms in of the distillation process. Or, right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. You don't know. Well, what yeah, now done. it's being grown in you know, states in India where are they applying, you right. know, are, are they applying lots of agrochemicals to the fields? And that's not what you're taking in. Who knows what they're doing? And there's also the concentration issue, right? It may be that the Mm -hmm. plants themselves, like as with uh, coca leaves and cocaine, that the the leaves themselves are benign. But if you start concentrating the stuff, then you create a hazard. So there's all kinds of stuff to wonder about. But the general question, are the leaves themselves safe? Probably, given that these people have been using it. Um, But you do want to know that that work is high quality and that this really is a longstanding relationship and that... Yeah, they really are using it to sweeten drinks, mm-hmm. right? So they're right. getting they're getting a dose of it, and it's not that they're it's not purely medicinal where a toxin would be expected, right? Well, people were put up with with um, side effects, yeah, in a way that choosing to go back multiple times a day, maybe um, to have a pleasurable experience in a drink, um, you 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 don't you don't bring that along with a, an obvious discomfort. Yeah. Good. All right, the, I've now opened up a bunch of pages on asters and stevia and have to find our questions. Where are they? There we go. All right. Hello, come on up. Welcome. And he's stepping on the computer. Okay. <laughs> um, first question from darkhorseemissions.com today. Do you think there is a way either through biological procedures or statistical studies to determine conclusively if a cardiac or heart event or cardiac or heart events in the aggregate are related to the vaccine. Also, how are we able to distinguish vaccine harm from an actual COVID harm? These distinctions seem like they'd be helpful to settle some of the fighting. Finally, do your instincts tell you we will eventually turn the corner and go back to relative normal? Um, I wish my instincts told me that. Yeah, I don't, things I, tell me the opposite yeah. uh, on, on the last question at the moment. I don't think we're going back to normal, unfortunately. Now, maybe this is an adaptive valley and we establish a new normal on the basis that we've just learned how much danger we're in because our institutions all suck. That would be great. Um, from the point of view of, was the question about autopsies or was the question in living people? doesn't say it. Do you think there's a way, either through biological procedures or statistical studies, to determine conclusively if a cardiac or heart event or cardiac or heart events in the aggregate are related to the vaccine, how can we distinguish vaccine harm from actual COVID harm? Yes. Uh, there are several different ways. One, you've got the distinction between uh, 2020 and 2021 and beyond, which tells us a lot about that distinction to the extent that you can look at the the data that distinguishes the events. So that's the statistical, that's the aggregate. Um, I have wondered this question about individual events a lot, and I gather that there are some, I do not know the specifics, but I think Dr. McCullough has argued that myocarditis looks different 
from COVID versus the vaccines, and I don't, I don't know the specifics. I don't, that is the only one of these though that I have heard that someone who knows his stuff and has looked carefully is saying actually it manifests differently. The, 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 yeah. the, the, the way that clinically we can tell so if we're looking. There's a lot of work that has to be done. And unfortunately, we are, the work that is being done is being done in an environment that is not conducive to discovery because there are so many dogs that people have in the fight that you know they want to elevate the harm of covid so that the harm of the uh, inoculations is uh, drowned out for example so that's a perverse incentive i think the key thing to understand is that you have one set of harms that actually does not inherently distinguish between the shots and the disease. Spike is produced by the shots and the disease. And to the extent that spike is bad, you can get inflammation as a result of spike circulating in the bloodstream. Okay? That is very different than the invasion of heart cells that then go on to be destroyed by T cells. Right? And so to the extent that what we are seeing are people who have had their hearts, and by the way, it won't just be their hearts. We call it myocarditis in the heart, but the destruction of tissue when cells are invaded by the mRNA and then destroyed by the immune system, that will happen in all tissues. But but the cells can obviously be invaded by SARS-CoV-2. It doesn't have to be. The question is, do they? And this was the point I was trying to, to make. To some degree, right? It's, There's myocarditis associated with COVID as well. Right, but myocarditis means inflammation. Okay, that's not the, I'm not saying that SARS-CoV-2 doesn't ever invade a heart cell, but there's actually little reason for it to. And so my guess is, since we're not talking about a completely synthetic virus, we're talking about something that was taken from the wild and enhanced, mm -hmm. right? right? I think the chances are low that it invades the heart liberally because it has no reason to do it. It doesn't help it spread and actually it gets in the way of it spreading. So the... Um, the, the confusion here is that myocarditis is not a specific disease. It is a symptom. It is a symptom okay. of a couple different things. It could be a symptom of irritation or slight damage. And it, and it lumps mechanisms. Right. And so the point, what is special about the mRNA shots in particular is that they are indiscriminate in terms of what they get into. Not even the DNA shots are indiscriminate because the DNA shots utilize this adenovirus and the adenovirus has its own preferences about what cells to invade and invading the heart is not likely to be useful to it mm -hmm. so okay. so the point is look maybe there's myocarditis with covid alone right but that just means inflammation the damage that is signaled by the inflammation in the heart is um largely associated with the mrna shots and the hypothesis not just mine, several other people have come up with related versions of this hypothesis. But the hypothesis is that the mRNAs get into cells indiscriminately because they're just covered in a fat that has an affinity for cells and it gets into them. That's how it's designed to work, right? And the only limitation on where it does that comes from the locality of the shot. And we know that that doesn't keep it from flowing around, whether that's because of an aspiration issue or because they just naturally leak into the body or both. And so the damage from the mRNA shots that 
are getting into heart cells, into myocytes, and causing those cells to be destroyed, those cells then, unlike other tissues of the body, not every other tissue, but unlike almost all of the tissues of the body, the heart does not heal, right? It scars. And so you, there is presumably a particular danger in the phase where you have effectively an open wound on the inside of your heart in the vasculature, right? That wound is a particular vulnerability. You will be better off after it scars. Is this diagnosable in some... Um... And hold on, this is true for the entire, all cardiovascular vessels, all circulatory vessels, right? They do not heal, they scar, which means at, um, so the, whatever we were calling this, the stuff at the beginning, one of the symptoms that people were talking about for COVID oh, the, was the, the it's got some it strange names, but it's like basically this numbness at the, the fingers, um, you know, from, oh, from COVID. I almost had it, but go ahead. Yeah. Um, Chillblains. Oh, that's the toes. Th that's what, well, whatever. Um, <clears throat> that, that may precisely be about um, the circulatory vessels at the capillary level where it's, you know, one red blood cell wide, uh, be, you know, having scarred as a result of of uh, the the virus and then you know becoming not um, you know not I want to say conducive in, to flow infusible defusible something profusible profusible yes um, I Profu think that's profusible. I think that's slightly different um, because okay. what we know is that spike causes the um, clumping of blood cells spike itself mm. so that doesn't necessarily require scarring now there it does, is it doesn't require it right yep. There is vulnerability of all of the circulatory vessels to being invaded by the mRNA. And then once invaded, they presumably transcribe the spike protein and they get attacked by um, T cells that view them as infected. Mm -hmm. So the question is, is there a way to be sure? Yeah. I think on autopsy, there is a way to be almost sure, right? In other words, on autopsy, and maybe this can be done with a sophisticated scan, like a CAT scan, one can view that there is damage. My understanding from people who have looked deeply into this issue is that there's something akin to third-degree burns on the inside of the heart, right? Now, those burns are unlikely to be due to anything else. And the fact of them being the result of this can be diagnosed if you don't get there too late, right? If the event happens, you get this wound from the vaccination, the most likely time for you to suffer a cardiac arrest is presumably soon, right? Um, and the, the longer you make it, the longer you're likely to make it. I would love to hear a cardiologist evaluate that, but in terms of just the basic biology of the system, that's what you would expect. The wound yep. is more dangerous than the scar. The scar is less useful than the original tissue. Mm -hmm. but, um, but the point is you will be at some intermediate phase where you will have cells that have been destroyed and eliminated and are just gone. Right? I mean, imagine you had a burn. Some cells are just completely destroyed. Some cells are hanging out on the edge. And so the question is, is there a concentration of an indicator of uh, these cells having been producing spike protein in the form of some cells that are there having spike on their surface and this sort of thing? So from the point of view of nailing it down, that's a guess as to how you would do it. Somebody who understands cardiology well 
should evaluate that and fine tune it and mm-hmm. or maybe it's wrong and then that person should tell us how you would do it but yes i yeah. believe an autopsy can do it short of an autopsy you know you don't exactly want to go biopsying the heart right that's a danger in and no. of itself yeah um but i do believe you could certainly with autopsies get a bead on what the pathology looks like and how frequently it is the result of a uh, a vaccine injury and yeah. then in living people happening. you could infer right. uh, well it is beginning to happen there's there's this big german data set um which uh is quite alarming anyway you can look at uh, dr malone's um substack which points to this uh, german study um, but there it is beginning to come out now we are seeing some autopsy stuff but yes for a long time they were avoiding doing autopsies i think because they didn't want to know well and i mean i this is this is one of the core questions, right, that, that we've been asked here. And everyone who's thinking about this should want to know the answer because, you know, healthy young men collapse on the field and, um, you know, we don't know. And there's all sorts of speculation. But when we know that we're not being told enough even to ask the right questions about what's happening. Like, well, the the only thing we have for sure, other than possibly the kinds of stuff that you're talking about developing here, is 2020 versus 2021 and later with regard to deaths associated with COVID-like stuff. But we know that dying with and dying of has been conflated. And we also know that the evolution of the virus has done all sorts of weird and wacky things. And, you know, Omicron was less likely to kill you outright uh, than what was circulating in 2020. And maybe whatever the crazy one is called now, X.1, whatever it is, um, is is less yet. But, you know, maybe longer term, it's got more risk. Like, we, we don't know the answers to any of these questions. And until and unless we actually do someone's start developing exactly these sorts of ways to distinguish between you know was that vaccine was that covid this the true story will never be told because the you know to the degree that there are data that are takeable and then analyzable forever once you have the data you can analyze them if they were taken well you know infinitely but the ability to access the data will disappear they are disappearing If they're not being taken, they're disappearing. And then, oh, sorry, guys, I guess it's our version of the story because you don't have another one. Yeah, it it, uh, harkens back to the discussion we were having in the main podcast where, you know, none of this is all that hard to do, right? If you want to find out whether these inoculations are having this effect, you can study it. There's no mystery about how you would do this. Um, And what we are frustratingly downstream of is the obligation that we embarrass the system into functioning, right? That we embarrass it, that we ask so many questions about people keeling over on uh, this field or that field and that we, you know, insist on autopsies and that we require Mm -hmm. the press to report these things. And it just shouldn't be this way. The, The point is the system has become an obstacle to understanding. It claims to be the source of understanding. It has become an obstacle to understanding because it has higher priorities and it's not supposed to. That's right. Next question, totally different. From my casual observations, it appears that when women are younger, 
they are attracted much more to the alpha male type, e.g. bad boy, and as women get older, they are attracted to beta types. Could this be related to fertility levels where young women who are most fertile seek alphas, but as women's fertility diminishes, the mating strategy shifts to betas who are more likely to stay around. Thanks, guys. Keep up the great work. I don't agree with the framing of alpha and beta here. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, it's a sort of common it's a common way to frame human males, but it, this isn't right, and it also misunderstands. I mean, alpha alpha and beta are kind of archaic ways of describing dominance hierarchies in yeah. non-human animals as well. But it is you know it can be accurate. There are there are organisms with linear dominance hierarchies by sex, of course, and um, you know we all know that alpha is the first letter and beta is the next, and you know <clears throat> on and on. And so it's a decent shorthand, even though it's not really a, a set of terms that is used in animal behavior at this point. But what is widely missed is that alpha males in species that are really clearly uh, organisms with linear male hierarchies, which it's not clear that most cultures of humans are, but you know there's definitely dominance, uh, are actually the most likely to be conciliatory. They're the they're the peacemakers, like the the alphas. Uh, and you know, if you in, uh, I always mispronounce his name. It's like Franz Deval, the um, the primatologist who wrote, among other things, "Peacemaking Among Primates," um, has uh, a a career of thinking about of of watching, admittedly, most of mostly captive great apes, uh, and looking specifically at at dominance and dominance interactions um, between both uh, within both sexes and between sexes. And time and again, what he finds is that in sort of a, a ranking, not of the individuals in terms of their dominance, but in terms of um, their conciliatory tendencies and prowess, like who who tends to be the most the biggest peacemaker, the alpha male is always on top. And then if you're talking about species with um, linear hierarchies in males and females, like alpha male, alpha female, and then you know most of the other females, and then the rest of the males, yeah, they're not really into peacemaking because they're trying to become alpha, right? Um, but actually, to be alpha is to is to 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 be thinking about the whole group because otherwise you're not going to stay on top very long. Um, I would also, there's another reason to just doubt this interpretation, right? If we're talking about human beings, and the question was specifically about human beings, um, yep. the stakes in reproduction are so high, and the variability in the value of mates is, yes, maybe somewhat in endogenous characteristics, but it is also tremendously tied up in resource availability, dedication and loyalty, mm -hmm. um, ability to protect. And so the point is, the, the idea that young women are more fertile and therefore seeking higher status males, A, males, I mean, I, either a male is infertile mm -hmm. or he's fertile enough, right? to produce right, right. offspring. Yeah. And so the point is really a, a, a female who prioritized the, let's say, let's substitute the term virility of mm -hmm. a male because she was very fertile young, right? What is she doing, right? Yeah. The point is really what she wants There's is- There's not a shortage of sperm. Right, it's not, it's not hard to come by. And so the um, a female does, so A, female reproductive value is something that is greatest 
early in life because the amount of reproductive potential that lies in the future rather than the past is greatest on the cusp of reproduction, right? So um, the pattern you're describing, if it exists, is liable to be that um, you have status in males and females and that females who pair off early um, are liable to be higher status, have access to a wider range of males, and as the population of available males dwindles to ones that are less desirable because of their inherited status, because of the resources they've accumulated, because of their physical ability to protect, all of the characteristics that make for a desirable mate, right? The point is the later a female pairs off, the farther down the list in the male hierarchy that female is likely to be. And with with the very large caveat that in sort of um, an easy divorce culture, uh, there's lots of people constantly being thrown back into the mating pool. Well, and that is what I was going to end with here. And, it's, and I agree with you. Divorce is a key feature. Yeah. But it's like, look, you've got a dozen features. Just easy breakup culture. Right. right? Easy yeah. breakup, yeah. sex that doesn't produce offspring with any significant regularity. You've got all of these factors. And so you're trying to do primatology on, oh, those two are you know, engaging in reproductive behavior. What does that mean? Well, maybe it means nothing, right? Because maybe the stakes are really low and they've both thought about it and thought, oh, the stakes are really low. What the hell? Right. So the point is you can't infer very much from preference if preference just means he's kind of cute you know mm -hmm. it, it, because the point is it's only when the stakes are high that these preferences truly reveal the pattern that you're looking for which is what is the bias in a human female and the bias in a human male so i'm recalling your one of your figures from your dissertation the trade-offs and the efficient frontier and you're basically saying that in most modern mating and dating games we're nowhere close to the efficient frontier so you can't do this kind of analysis with this at least at least with this level of detail yeah we're nowhere close to the efficient frontier and we have all of these garbage inputs right, right. where you know we are being sold a bill of goods with respect to what sexual and mating sophistication looks like right and the point is it is taken all of the logic out of the system and i'm not saying that the logic was up to date or fair it wasn't but there's now none mm -hmm. right it's just uh it's chaos and so uh you know the, the basic rule take it out of the realm of mating and dating the basic rule is do not you've got the ability to point adaptive tools for evaluating behaviors in any creature at any time up until you get to the present. And the point is you can't evaluate the present with those tools because what you don't know is that the pattern stands the test of time, right? At the point that a pattern has stood the test of time for a thousand years, right? Then you can say, oh, that's probably adaptive. I wonder why they do that. Um, to the extent that it has lasted all of 17 minutes, you don't know. That's probably just noise. Mm -hmm. Um. Problems everywhere, but who is organizing solutions? We are. Our biggest problem is that our systems have been corrupted. Will you discuss this with us? Signed, the Rationalist Society of Problem Solvers, and they provide a text number. I think I know who this is. Okay, so um, both of our websites have uh, email addresses on them. Uh, go to go to maybe both of them and send us both an email and tell us you know a little bit more than that uh, before. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't I don't like to see my phone at all, but uh, I, I definitely don't um, like to 
randomly send my phone number out into the universe. Right, right, right. <laughs> that that can be bad. Yeah. Um, I will say, don't take this the wrong way. I love rationalists, but I worry about them because their philosophy seems to be so darn irrational. Yeah. So and this might be a uh, convergent evolution. Mm-hmm. Fire, fire could be repeatedly discovered by accident from lightning or from striking rocks to make sparks. But how did our ancient ancestors first discover the value of cooking food? I mean, I think <clears throat> I think it's likely to have been the same the same thing, right? You walk through a scarred landscape, a fire scarred landscape, and there's um, there's cooked meat around, yeah, elk, mm. bunnies, squirrel, like what you know, whatever couldn't get out of the way of the fire, yep. as it's still sort of smoking and sizzling, and all the vegetation is black, and there's you know, there's there's barbecued bunnies. Yep. No, I uh, <coughs> I think Excuse this me. is this is almost certain. Made me that, cough. The thought of fire, you know. The, <laughs> Barbecue bunnies, flaming though. fur. Yeah, um, yeah. No, I, I, I. This is we discussed weeks ago the difference between an evolutionary puzzle where there's a adaptive valley between this and the next opportunity, or versus a gentle slope. And we talked about the fact that uh, the creatures that are sea creatures venturing a little farther onto land because the meander line has left debris that's edible the farther inland you can go the more there is to eat there's no gap right you don't have to get across something it's just better and better the more tolerant you are to move my take on that conversation is the exact opposite and i've got an entire lecture on all the things you have to do to make the move on to land that's not what i'm saying i'm okay. saying that the uh reward for overcoming those obstacles is continuous right but the, it's discreet with regard to are you breathing air or water are you supporting your weight of your weight on land or water no are is the you know is the refractive index of air or water uh what your eye is attuned to right I'm you not, know, are I, you mo are you able to smell no not really because you've been in water and now there might be a reason to be able to smell on land you know there's just so so you know do you I'm have not, a neck i'm not i mean Obviously, getting onto land, for, I do have a neck. Yeah, it's, yeah, tetrapod. Yeah, see, exactly. Yeah. Um, the I, I'm not disagreeing with you that there are a tremendous number of difficult problems to solve. What I'm arguing is that the creature that gets one inch further than their competitors has unlocked resource. So the point is, the signal "keep coming this way" mm -hmm. is continuous, rather than, for example, a creature that is going from a big pool temporarily into a small pool and back again over some piece of rock, right? Mm -hmm. Where the point is, there's no reward for getting onto the rock. You have to get all the way to the pool before mm -hmm. it's there. So yeah. anyway, Got it. Um, the what fire, fire, Cooking right. Food. So the, the, um, you've got a creature that is involved in hunting and gathering and occasionally encounters the aftermath of fire. And the point is the reward for um, discovering resources, you know, will a hunter have discovered a, uh, a damaged but not dead animal, mm -hmm. right? Um, and a animal will watch an animal die in front of it, right? So the point is there is a signal leading directly to the discovery of uh, cooked meat. And there's a set of detectors that one has that 
presumably monitor the value of something that you have eaten. And so... Well, and, and cooked meat brings more more caloric value. Yeah, that's right? you what get, I'm... You, you, get more, you get more, not nutrients, but calories out of cooked meat. And for our hunter-gatherer ancestors, that was important. They were limiting, yeah. Yep, that was quite critical. But I don't... I don't know about the stumbling upon a half dead but burned enough to be cooked animal well um, scenario, but uh, I do. It does feel like probably as hard as this is to imagine for us now. Probably those first tastes of cooked meat were less palatable than eating raw meat because it was new. Yeah, uh, you know, even even though it turns out to be good for us. Uh, it was it was novel, and therefore probably it was at least uh, un, um, un not preferred. And so the idea of cooked meat becoming having to become a preferred taste is itself sort of interesting uh, yeah. over over evolutionary time. Well, you would imagine you know there, there's the sort of circuit applies to a bunch of things, right? Um, including mating preferences, right? When people are in very depauperate circumstances, they contemplate mates they never would otherwise. Um, but in food space, you know, how many different levels of starving have human ancestors experienced? All of them right up to the point that you keel over dead because you don't have enough to eat. Right. And so the point is, at what level of starving do you first entertain the possibility of uh, consuming meat that is not in the form that, that you're used to, that you're used to yeah. right? And yeah. No, um, and I mean, there's more caloric value, but also less likely to make you sick, less likely to be in, you know, infected with, you know, prions or, you know, <laughs> or, or maggots right. or anything else, right? Yep. Maggots wouldn't be the case unless you were eating from already dead meat, but... Yep. Yeah. All right, next question. Have you heard of Boris and William James Sidis? S-I-D-I-S? I have not. I don't think so. Yeah. Um, let's see. Have you found any solid studies about the negative efficacy of the vax? Have you read the recent one from Cleveland Clinic? John Campbell removed his video about it. Love you guys. So this is going to be the, the one that we were asked about last week that I couldn't find. Um, I have not gone and looked at it. Uh, yeah, I haven't either. Yeah. Um, yeah, negative efficacy. Well, did it say efficacy? Yep. Negative so efficacy. Negative efficacy uh, appears to be a real phenomenon. That is to say, there are at least cases in which it seems to induce vulnerability, which could be antibody-dependent enhancement. It could be attenuation. It could be original antigenic sin. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it is still early. The fact is a system that worked would be obsessed with discovering this because it would actually have been concerned in the first place about uh, the disease being passed on and avoiding negative efficacy mm -hmm. would be a key. But somehow we're still pretending, we collectively. Yeah. Um. The opportunistic outsider that you're talking about is exactly who social media enables and why social media is so harmful. It gives a voice to this. That was a box that should not have been opened. That's interesting. That's emerging from our conversation last in the first in the first 
couple of hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it does. It not just enables, but it uh, empowers. Empowers, yeah. And it, and it, it, such people win by staying within their own framework, and uh, unfortunately, by dragging us into theirs largely. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, we've had a battle uh, amongst thinking people who are trying to imagine what good moderation on social media would look like. Yeah. And one of the key facets of that has been what to think about anonymity. Mm-hmm. And I must say, initially, my sense as an evolutionary biologist is anonymity is new. It is wildly amplified in its power on social media. We would be better off without it. Now, I got a lot of pushback amongst people who correctly point out that there are lots of folks who are in a vulnerable position where anonymity is the only way for them to reveal what they know without harming their families, etc. Mm-hmm. I agree putting with that. putting their jobs at risk. Yep. I also agree that there are historical examples in which anonymous uh, publications have persuaded people usefully. So it, mm-hmm. I think it's a trade-off and... I still think the net effect in the present is spectacularly negative, but it's not a simple matter. And so anyway, there's various versions of uh, pseudonymous um, structures mm-hmm. that might free us from the worst. And do, do any of them uh, prevent the arbiter, like the, the holder of the information that verifies that this is a real person from being the social media company itself? Oh, that's a great question. Presumably you could set up a contracting system where just like uh, your vendor may not know your credit card number because you've submitted it to Stripe or something. Yes. But the question is, okay, then how do you build one of those that you can trust? Yeah. Um, So anyway, it's, it's a a complex and thorny issue, and you've got to figure out exactly which problem you're trying to solve, Mm -hmm. right? Are you trying to just make sure people don't have multiple accounts? That's a big deal. Are you trying to make sure that uh, each account is a real person? That's a big deal. Are you trying to make sure that things are traceable back to an individual if they do something terrible, right? So some version of reputation. But, I mean, also the first one you came up with, multiple accounts... Especially, I mean, this is both important and it feels so ridiculous to be talking about it at all, but um, it is important. And um, like, I had never been on social media at all until Evergreen blew up and I got an account and then it became really clear uh, that my same account without my middle initial uh, was going to be grabbed by someone and was going to be, you know, tagged as, as my account because it is my name, right? Right. So... At, I think your brother's suggestion, actually, I got that account and just have, you know, one thing at the top of it that says, you know, my, you know, this is me, but my real account is, is there. Yep. And, you know, if I couldn't have that second account, someone would have grabbed it and someone would be out there pretending to be me. Yep. Especially, so the reason that this is, you know, even more fraught now is I think that's what the blue check was supposed to help with, right? Yep. And uh, now that, A, there's a lot of us who, you know, could you know, are sometimes impersonated yep. um, who still don't have the blue check it's not very useful and also given that now it's just a like a 
I don't even know what it's supposed to indicate anymore. So there's basically, you went from a system that was deeply flawed, especially because there was so much censorship on the inside, to a, really, there's no system at all. At least without checking a few, you know, well, you have to click a few things deep to figure out some things. Yes, the primary function that it's serving, and I think it's a very low quality implementation, but the primary thing is it sweeps away a huge fraction of the low quality bot, um, many sock puppet architecture, right? By putting a price that is non-trivial on having an account, you can't make a thousand accounts to all, um, you know, rally around the same bullshit cause. And so anyway, it clears away a lot of noise. It clears it away with a lot of people who are for real. So, I mean, you've obviously been on the inside of that and I haven't, but it feels to me like given what we know about the amount of money that is at stake and has changed hands in some ways over the suppression of true information. Yep. Uh, uh, in the last several years. There's plenty of money out there to buy tens of thousands of bots for any given cause. Sure. So I, it doesn't even feel to me like it's the barrier that it seems like it is. Well, it's not even that simple, though, because I think each account needs to have a unique credit card. And so there's a, it's just, it puts a okay. tax on that behavior. It's certainly not beyond powerful entities to use it, but it removes a huge fraction of it, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and by the way, I do think it was not done well and it should have been done differently and it should be effectively at least that Twitter, uh, evaluates your humanness mm -hmm. and allows you only one account. Now, I don't know what you do about that other case. It might be that you should be able to say, I want this account and I want that account, which is certain to become uh, a unique problem for me parked. Mm -hmm. I don't want to use it, mm -hmm. but I don't want anybody else to use it. But then again, you know, uh, does John Smith have the same situation as Heather Hying? You know, I don't know. But right. um, so something. I think I think a much better implementation would have been good. And, you know, Musk is learning the hard way that some of these things that seem like solutions cause big problems. Yeah. Um. On the same topic, just a comment, big tech and data privacy attorney here, by the way. The ad tech and data privacy landscape is fascinating right now. Many problems are spawning from digital advertising. Digital advertising. That's, oh wait, and he, he's written a couple others. COPPA, C-O-P-P-A, all caps, and other laws do restrict data collection and ad activity towards children. That would be a fun discussion. Hmm. All right. Yeah, I would certainly like to know that because it certainly looks like there's an awful lot of advertising that will reach children predictably. Yeah, exactly. And then just one more uh, from the same the same person. Heather, you hit the nail on the head about HR. It's truly shocking. Yeah, I mean, I think HR is becoming DEI at some level. Yeah. Uh, and it's a, it's a jobs program for... Um, petty tyrants. Petty tyrants. That's what it is. Um, we need a, uh, what's the, what's the song in the final cut? The home for incurable tyrants, tyrants and, and kings. kings. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the uh, Fletcher Memorial, the Fletcher Memorial home yep. for incurable tyrants and kings. Yep. 
Yeah, well, um, the Fletcher Memorial Home for Incurable Petty Tyrants and would-be kings is going to be rather larger than we have room for. <laughs> That's why we have Mars. Oh, is that what he's doing? I don't know, but... We'll see. Now, it's, it's the first thing I've heard. <laughs> that sounds like a proper use of that planet. It's a penal colony. Okay. Um, regarding mouse telomeres, do you have any thoughts on the recent FDA Modernization Act 2.0 no longer requiring animal testing for new drugs? You see this? I just just barely ran into this. Nope. FDA has... Yeah, and I don't, I don't know the limits. I don't like... but. Something came out. Don't require animal testing for new drugs. Yeah. Look, I'm not a fan of the animal testing. On the other hand, I'm really not a fan of taking of not testing drugs it. that have right. not been tested. Yeah. Um, yeah, on the other hand, uh, mice lies. The, uh, what? What did you say? Um, did you say mice lies? Mice lie. Yeah, I'm trying to remember uh, what the... There's a little syllogism uh, about, I can't remember what it is, but anyway, yes, mice are, even people who don't understand the telomere issue understand that mice give them results that are deeply misleading. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, drug testing is fraught, uh, animal testing, drug testing on animals is fraught for a billion reasons. We don't need to do that on camera, do we? (laughs) Um, He's just cleaning his leg. Yeah, now he is. (laughs) Um, you know, because the, the mice lie, the rodent, the rodent models lie in general. Um, the primates are, it's cruel and unusual at best. Uh, I don't know what, what, I don't even know what other, like those, those are the main clades of animal models or rather not animal models of, of animals that get, um, drug safety tested on. Uh, So, yeah, I don't, I don't know what the answer is though. Well, a uh, fresh sheet of paper, frankly. I don't, trust, I don't trust these people, and I don't trust that you can uh, amend the system usefully and make it work. There are too many, there are clearly too many separate defects combining yeah. to create a little paradise for pharma and mm-hmm. a minefield for the rest of us. Yep. Merch idea. Big pharma. An ounce of prevention is... Redacted text with red marker written over it. A breach of the fiduciary responsibility to shareholders. You know, I was thinking exactly that. I, I guess I hadn't gone as far as Mark, but yes. That's Screenshotting it. Yep. Okay, good. Thank you. Um, we've, got, we've got a number of things that are just links, and the way this comes in, I can't, it's, it's actually complicated. It's hard to click on links, so I, I don't know what's in them. What can you tell us about itching? Sometimes it's positive, sometimes delightful, sometimes deadly-ish. What's up with that? Itching? Itching. Yeah. Itching. I, I, I've done a little thinking in the neighborhood here. Um, imagine that you had a creature, like a person. For instance. For example. Mm-hmm. And that that creature had, you know, a surface area. And that that surface area... We're really in the realm of sci-fi here, I man. I know. It's okay. wild, wild <laughs> stuff, but stretch your mind, right? Okay, that's right. Okay. Now imagine that that surface area can be breached in all kinds of ways. It can be breached by little parasites that will put a little appendage in and drink lymph. 
It can be breached by a spine from a plant that can get into your skin and it can cause an abrasion or a reaction or all kinds of things, right? So the point is there's really no shortage of little ways that something can be off about your skin. And suppose that you were a dexterous creature that had, um, you know, fingers with nails and stuff where you might be able to usefully do something about some of that stuff, yeah. right? Well, how are you going to detect it? Well, maybe what you do is you detect um, that some cells that were in a state before are now slightly pressing on each other right that would happen if you got some thorn right or some tiny little you know like hair like like a cactus you ever touched one of those cactuses where the little almost microscopic the urticating uh, hairs yeah the hairs get stuck in your skin right well you might have a detector that would be able to detect the fact that there's just pressure because your cells are slightly pushed apart by something or no longer in contact with each other where they were or something like that right um or you could have i mean imagine a mosquito has okay. landed upon you. I'm imagining you. a mosquito. Yeah, imagine a mosquito has landed on you. You know, one of the few really great things about January yes. is in general, you don't have to think about mosquitoes. No, you don't. At least Unless, here in the northern hemisphere. Right, but we're gonna, and then we'll stop because it's uh, it's a little irritating. It's exactly the point. Mm-hmm. Um, and irritation causes itchiness. Right. So, but you think about how the mosquito looks as it, like, there's nothing more annoying than that noise, right? But I suppose it doesn't go by your ear. Oh, in the last three years, I, I, I can now think of things more annoying than that noise. Fair point. Yeah. <laughs> um, to an ancestor, okay, there are a few sure. things more annoying mm-hmm. than that noise of the mosquito. But if it doesn't pass Laden by... Laden as it is with Plasmodium falciparum. Right. <laughs> ah. <laughs> Malaria on board. Exactly. Yes. Um, but the legs of that animal are so exquisitely built so that you do not detect the bulk of that animal as it lands on your skin because it's so well suspended, right? Yeah, you can hear it. Uh, it is not It is not won the selection game to make it inaudible. Well, but you can barely feel it. Even more so, I think that we have enhanced detection, that we've got like an right, amplifier. But you would expect us to have an, an amplifier on the skin as well. And we do. And we do. So the point is you would need a very sensitive detector to feel one of those legs just sitting on the surface of your skin so lightly, right? Um, Or as it uh, takes its... Proboscis? Is it a proboscis? I don't know. Takes its proboscis or whatever you call that in mosquitoes and... It's a needle nose. Begins to insert it between your cells, right? Those things have to trigger something. Right now, here's the punchline of the joke is, okay, if you've got that detector because there are mosquitoes in the world and they might be carrying malaria. And so you really need to know early, like before it gets its proboscis inserted very deeply into your tissues, that something is on you. Then guess what? Now you've got a smoke detector problem, right? Mm -hmm. If that smoke detector is going to save your life, then it's going to go off when you burn toast, right? And so what you've got is a system that is tuned to detect something that could be a mosquito's leg. But you know what could be a mosquito's leg? Just about anything, right? Just the tiniest little fiber from a piece of clothing that is in the wrong place and 
Bang, you know. It's... <laughs> <laughs> no one knows what you're talking about. Nobody has ever experienced that tiny little fiber that drives you crazy in the back of the... Right. So yeah. the, the point is, you've got a smoke detector problem, but yeah. there's no better way to build That's it. That's a great analogy. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that is a great analogy. And so still, though, what we are left with is... Um, it's like allergies, yep. right? Uh, where there's also kind of a smoke detector problem in some ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, but some some itchiness uh, is really telling you to tend to something. You can work it out. You can yep. you can like you can get the, the little urticating hairs off before they work their way in, right? Uh, but but sometimes there's maybe an inflammation below the surface about which you can do nothing, or at least you can do nothing without causing more damage than is already going to happen. Ah. So, so there, there's, there's also that, like the question was, um, sometimes it's positive, sometimes delightful. Sometimes it's, so that's more about like the perception. Cause sometimes itchiness does kind of feel like, Oh, that's why like, Oh, that feels so good. Right. right. And sometimes like, I can't believe this still itches. I'm like, oh, I'm going to destroy myself scratching it. Right. Right. Well, so A, you can imagine if you've got detectors on your surface looking for mosquito-like phenomena or ticks or whatever it is that they might alert you to early, and then you had an inflammation underneath from for whatever reason, right, that that inflammation would be setting off detectors in the neighborhood for all kinds of reasons, right? Mm-hmm. So the point is, of course, there would be some itch, and not because there's something useful to do with the inflammation, just because those detectors are not sophisticated. They're not like antibodies looking for a particular electromagnetic signature it's much more general anything that could be a yeah. mosquito or anything else um but the other thing is the question about like i mean forgive me for raising a gross subject implied by this question but something like picking a scab right mm. now obviously there is a degree to which picking a scab is a negative thing in many cases you can you can cause an infection, you can rip the thing off and, and delay the healing. On the other hand, there is almost certainly a reason that at the point that some wound has scabbed over and healed pretty well and you pull that scab off and you're back to what you were, the relief involved in finally pulling that damn thing off is so great. that. And what, what precedes that moment in the healing process is itching. Is itching. Right, mm-hmm. exactly. And what's more, there's another thing. I mean, imagine whatever the hunter-gatherer version of road rash is, right? Road rash being the thing that happens when you fall off your bike or your motorcycle or whatever. I'm thinking you chase your quarry off the same edge of the cliff that you were just trying to chase it off of. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or, you know, you could imagine, you know, you slide on a rock and you've now yeah. got little tiny pieces of gravel mm. embedded in you mm-hmm. right and in some sense there's a Work it cost out. benefit Work question it yeah. right cost benefit so if you get the you know if the goo that makes the the natural bandage for you ends up encapsulating some little stone that's sitting there and then you pull it out mm. yeah you probably slowed your healing a little but you didn't really want to heal around that little tiny piece of stone anyway mm-hmm. and so yeah you have some um tendency to go after these things because there's a value right and as you point out stuff working stuff out is worth damage if the other alternative is it working its way in. That's right. Right, because those things are particularly, I mean, we have mechanisms to deal with them, right? Mm -hmm. You get a little piece of something in your tissue and you're 
your body will wall it off so it doesn't interact with you physiologically, but that's a costly way to deal with that. It's costly. I'm remembering, I don't have the research at my fingertips, but um, there was some research being done on frogs, and I th- we're trying to figure out how to mark them, and trust me, this is actually a thorny issue. It's like really, it's really hard to mark frogs in a way that you can know when you come back to one that it's the same individual. I resorted to tattooing them. And, yes, you did. And it worked Ish. decently, not not great in you know in the field in Madagascar. Um, but what these people had done, and you know, frogs are also small, and so if you want if you if you want to put something on them so that you can track them remotely, um, the batteries aren't going to last very long because the animals themselves are so small. And you, the for volant animals, it's like no more than ten percent of the weight of the animal should be something you add to it, right? Something yeah. like that. Uh, for hippity hop animals, maybe a little more, but whatever. So they had um, they had encased it in something that wasn't supposed to be um, that the gut wasn't supposed to respond to or or evacuate. I think either they they force fed these frogs these little transponders, or they may have actually stitched them deep into the skin. But it's I think, a little RFID. I think so. Yeah, this yeah. is a while ago, and I should I should have looked it up. Is I, I used to talk about this when I would lecture on marking techniques for animals, and. Um, this study keeps just losing the frogs. And I'm like, wow, these frogs are really prone to dying. But then they started occasionally finding the transponders or the RFID, whatever they are. They're just kind of lying around. Like, well, what, what happened? And so they took some of these frogs, I think, into the lab, which is the opposite of the field. Mm. Um, and, and gave them these things, however they had given them to them in the first place, I think, again, uh, by mouth, but I'm not positive about that. And their bodies encased them and moved them through tissue, through muscle, out of their bodies. Out. And they didn't come out the GI tract. They didn't. They didn't come out no, their I cloacas. They came out through like just whatever was closest, like probably you know the side. And you know amphibians and and mammals are quite different, capable of quite different things. But uh, but that's extraordinary. And our bodies do uh, not quite as good a job in, in of that particular thing, but uh, we do encapsulate things and move them and you know expel eventually. Yep. Now we can infer the other part of that story, Can't we? which is that those frogs went back to their friends and were like, "I got abducted. Somebody <laughs> put a some kind of a transmitter, and uh, I was hearing voices, and nobody believed them." Yeah, they're like. Yeah evidence where is it dude like i got rid of it i had to get rid of it they were going to keep following me like you sound paranoid (laughs) yep all right we must have been at it for close to an hour at this point and we've got so many more questions i'm going to just do a couple more really quickly uh are you familiar with the venus project sounds similar to brett's idea of game b uh i have heard of it have not delved deeply okay uh, why does ankyloglossia, which is tongue tie, exist in newborns? Doesn't seem to make much sense. Much love to you too. Mm. Um, tongue tie, the the uh, whatever it's called, the 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 piece of tissue that connects oh. the tongue to the the floor of the mouth. Yeah, um, is really short in mm-hmm. some newborns, and it gets in the way of their ability to breastfeed. Um, I have not given this any thought at all. I had to actually. I thought that's what the word meant, but I had to quickly look it up before. Coming on, that's basically the extent of my knowledge of it. But my suspicion is uh, that uh, it's more prevalent now. 
yeah, it's this, a this, this, this is a hyper novel thing, and I don't I don't yeah. know what is going on that's contributing to it. But uh, the prediction is uh, check out people who aren't doing all the crazy hyper modern stuff we're doing, and see if uh, yep. and, and see if tongue tie isn't or ankyloglossia isn't a lot less common. Um, Ooh, that's a long question. Uh, what are your thoughts on the works and opinions of Alex Epstein, Alex Epstein, Bjorn Lomborg, and Michael Schellenberger? Thank mm. you. Uh, do it really quick. I don't know who Epstein is. I do. Okay. Um, let's put it this way. I think there's something to be learned in this conversation and that um, we're going to have to reboot everything. And, you know, I, people will know from my conversation with Michael Schellenberger that I quite like the guy, actually. I was very suspicious of him at first. I still think he's dead wrong on fission power. Um, but, I mean, we aren't, we no longer live in California, but we were, we both thought he would have made an excellent governor. Well, he would have made an excellent governor, I think. Hopefully, uh, we could have had a conversation about uh, the wisdom of nuclear power or fission power at that point. Um, he would definitely have made a better governor than Gavin Newsom, but then again, so would a rotten eggplant. And, mm -hmm. um, yep. you know, that's no reflection on, on Michael. Yeah, no, not at all. Um, I don't know this one either. What do you think of the open letter from the Vandenberg Coalition to the Lancet, media, et cetera, condemning the suppression of the lab leak theory? I don't know the letter. Uh, I don't think I know the letter. Yeah. I'm guessing I'm in favor of the letter and uh, would wag my finger at the Lancet for all of the reasons that people know. Yeah. Okay. Uh, two more questions. Do you think Canada will become as dystopian as the former Soviet Russia, trying to decide when to get my family out of here I'm afraid. You know, we know and know of many people who are considering leaving Canada, which they view as their absolute home. Uh, you know, are Canadians through and through. Uh, I am not as tuned in to what's going on right now as I was about a year ago, and I stayed tuned in for a while after the after the truckers' convoy. Um, but. I fear I'm being naive somehow still, and it feels like Canada, really? On the other hand, why not? Like all the evidence points to they're not making sense and they're willing to take away so many, so many freedoms and, uh, and threaten so many barriers to freedom. Yep. Um, I will say I'm a little bit uh, hesitant to give you an opinion on whether or not I think that's plausible because um, I believe the most important thing is if you if your spidey sense is telling you that that's where you're headed and anybody says, oh, I don't think it's going to go that way and that persuades you to relax, then you may be putting yourself in danger and you probably yeah. know more about it than I do. But So anyway, what I would say is I don't know that that's where we are in history. I certainly do know that that fella who is uh, your prime minister um, has those inclinations and uh, unchecked. I have little doubt that that's where you would end up. And precious little self-awareness. Like those authoritarian inclinations and 
no apparent self-awareness of the impact um, and the inconsistency of his being. You know, he's um, he's a little bit like a Joffrey character who has <laughs> grown up in such a way that he can From now, Game of Thrones? Yeah, that he can hide <laughs> it, right? The, the delight in torturing people is a little bit better hidden but i do have the sense that this is a person given what he's done and how little remorse he has about it and how clearly he's willing to lie into a camera um all of those things uh, how excited he is for photo ops yeah that this is this is a machine and i don't know you know i can't there's obviously a complex story to be told about people who behave so diabolically with respect to strangers that doesn't inherently mean that he's diabolical at home, those two things, you know, being a decent family person and a diabolical leader is not unheard of. Um, but I can say that his public-facing persona could hardly be more alarming. And the fact that it comes in a pretty package is even worse, mm-hmm. right? Um, so I would say that object alone couldn't be more dangerous. As for your system, as for the inclinations of Canadians, maybe that protects you. But I don't know. You know, the question well, is. Well, Trucker's Convoy gave a lot of us hope, right? Yeah. For, for exactly that reason. Like they're true north, strong and free, right? Yeah. Uh, but uh, it's been a long time, and and it's an it's an arms race, and obviously yeah. the trucker convoy was a a hugely hopeful thing but it's not like um the canadian version of goliath didn't learn a few things from it right i sure did yeah one last question it's a big one we're going to take it briefly but it but we know this is a big question what is your opinion on antidepressants i am advised to take them but reluctant because of fear to lose creativity and numb my perception we know nothing about your situation right and uh, um, there are conditions under which they seem to be, <clears throat> some of the antidepressants on the market now seem to be the right thing for people uh, at, sort of at the end of trying all of the less invasive uh, things to deal with depression. Uh, but... I would say like so much of what is passing for medical care that actually involves something that seems simple because all you have to do is take a pill. Uh, this is this should be a last resort. It's actually it's actually going to have much longer term and complicated and complex uh, side effects that go far beyond what the medical system will likely uh, alert you to. And trying to get your sort of your, you know, the house that is your body in order and uh, the house that is your house in order and your, you know, your relations with other people first, it's a lot harder. Yeah. Um, sleep. But the house that is your body involves um, diet, sleep and exercise and, you know, getting outside, you know, preferably early every day and moving your body around in nature and 
you know, following Michael Pollan's instructions. And if you, if you are getting all of your food from a supermarket, buying at the edges, and if you are, you know, if you're foraging or growing or hunting more power to you, but, you know, get the seed oils and the sugars and all the synthetic stuff, uh, out of your, out of your diet and move your body a lot and spend time outside and, um, and get rid of as much of the extraneous, um, novelty in your life as you can with regard to sleep uh you know cut it about at a regular time and make sure you're not looking at screens for some hour or hours before that and get the noise and the light and hopefully all the electromagnetic radiation out of your room and uh and sleep simply and you know don't take other work to bed with you like all the things that lots of people are saying but uh there's a lot of things to be done and almost all of them are more complicated than taking a pill. Uh, but if they don't work, you can stop doing them and no harm, no foul. Yeah. Whereas if you stop taking an antidepressant, sometimes still your body will be reacting to having taken that for a long time to come. So I would add a couple of things. One, the whole antidepressant thing is the result of a bad model of how psychology works um chemical imbalance theory which was nonsense and it was transparently evolutionary nonsense which is not to say that nobody's ever had a chemical imbalance but the idea that some huge fraction of the population has a chemical imbalance and that the explanation for that chemical imbalance is not exogenous is, obesity is biological it's the yeah, same error it's that same yeah. nonsense that said um it is, you have to be aware of something. A, there's a distinction between the short-term consequence of taking whatever it is you're contemplating taking and the long-term implications. It is not unlikely that in the short term, anything that disrupt, disrupts normal will create novelty, yep. novelty and intrigue in your life, mm -hmm. right? Like taking any drug. And so the point is, okay, so then if you say, well, my my doctor tells me that this is going to help. I don't know. And then you take it and it's like, oh, that's interesting. Kind of like it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel different. I feel better. Good. Yeah. But, and four, then, but four weeks later, you're like, oh, I don't feel better anymore. Oh, well, we got to, we didn't have the dosage right. Right. And then the point you make is now if you take it away, <clears throat> crash, right? And so the point well, is... Well, not just that, but actually, you know, chemical after effects as well. That's what I mean. Yeah. But the point is now your body has equilibrated to it. You're not getting anything for it. Yep. You're paying whatever consequence there's, there is for having to process this uh, novel compound. And if you take it away, now the point is you have the opposite effect that you had at the beginning, uh, which was the novelty of its presence. So there's a lot of danger in this stuff. Um I am a huge fan of the following idea, as I know you are, that a human being is designed to function. Sometimes you can't function because something developmentally disrupted you and you've lost whatever it was that would allow you to function normally. And then you need a corrective lens of some kind, like maybe even a physically corrective lens to deal with your misshapen eyes or whatever, right? But in other Steady cases, there, sorry about that. No, it's a little personal, but <clears throat> in other cases, there is something that's messing you up that actually, if you could find it and eliminate it, you'd be better. Now, I don't know, maybe depression 
is more often than not the result of a long-standing pattern of psychology where you get into a, a rut and there's not something in your current environment that is responsible for it. But the number of times that I've found something in my life that actually was making me unhealthy in some way and didn't know it, right, is large, right? These things are there and it takes a sort of diligence about looking at patterns and noticing yeah, that thing shows up, and I wonder what happens if I remove it from my life. Yeah, and uh, this and this is one reason that you know missing from my already very abbreviated but very long <laughs> list of things that you can do um, travel. Like, act, if if you are sometimes lucky, sometimes not lucky enough to be working remotely, where you can actually take your job on the road, uh, act, and and you are in blackness like you cannot escape enough that your doctor is saying really you should try these antidepressants because i don't know what to do for you um if it, granted that that is a that is a very difficult moment at which to figure out how to get yourself someplace totally new but if you can get yourself someplace totally new with the expectation of you know and if you have the the luxury and the freedom to say actually i can continue doing my work but in a place somewhere totally else for three months uh, that's going to bring a whole lot of things into focus because you're going to now recognize uh, what you don't have, what you do have that you want, what you you know are missing, what you're not missing. It just it reveals a whole lot of things, and you you can do that on a smaller scale. You can, you know, you can even just like change up where the furniture is in your house. So that when you're walking through it at you know at night when you can't sleep because you know or, or maybe you're sleeping too much but then you do get up and like oh right the couch is over there now okay. just giving yourself Something. regular like oh th okay this is not this is not the same darkness that I've been living through this is this is something different and you know it it, it may be in the end that that drug is what you need um, but I wouldn't start there. Yep. Um, I would also say that there may be some uh, somewhat extreme novel interventions that don't have the same implication as the pharmaceutical. Mm -hmm. um, I know that all four of us in this family, sorry, Fairfax, not talking about you, have been experimenting with um, cold water plunges, showers, stuff like that. And, uh, it's amazing. Well, it's a little uncomfortable while you're doing it, um, but it does seem know. to create... I, I find that it is exhilarating. It is exhilarating. Yes, I prefer the exhilaration of the cold shower when you're in the hot Amazon and it is a it's respite. Yeah, totally. it's cold enough. But so our our favorite, one of our favorite places on earth is Tipitini, this field station in the middle of the Ecuadorian Amazon, very, very remote, like one, maybe the most biodiverse spot on earth. And the there's no heated water, um, <clears throat> but there's abundant water <clears throat> because they're just pulling water from the Rio Tipitini, which is a tributary of the Napa, which is a tributary of the Amazon. Uh, and and it's endless because the river's flowing right by. Uh, and somehow, even in the Amazon, when you get under it, you're like, oh, wow, mm, that's cold. But I think now, now we're not now, so cold. Now, you'd, now you'd, uh, you're, yeah. you're prepared. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, something like that, you know, uh, a a cold whatever shock to the body mm -hmm. um a has health benefits real ones mm -hmm. um b yeah. uh some of the benefits are that it psychologically takes you into a very different state and you do have this kind of euphoria 
um, mm-hmm. at least after it, yeah. um, that, you know, is somewhat lasting. Now, I've done less with this than you have, but sauna also known to have benefits, yeah. breaks up your day so it's not the same monotony as mm-hmm. you were pointing out. So anyway, the question is, is there something that you could introduce to your and life? Sauna, you know, most people don't have access to sauna. We move to an island where we don't have access to a sauna, for instance. But um, many people have access. You know, the water coming out of our taps in our showers is really cold. It's cold. Uh, and the water coming out of, say, the tap in an apartment in Seattle is not nearly as cold, apparently. Uh, but uh, still, everyone has access to coldish water. Even if you don't have a plunge pool or, you know, really, really cold water and yep. you don't have access to sauna, everyone has access to, you know, turn it to cold, brace yourself, walk in. And, um, you know, it's cool if you're in a place where you're allowed to yell a little bit. But Yep. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> definitely good. But uh, anyway, uh, breaking whatever pattern, you know, if you're stuck in an eddy, what you need is a disruption, something interesting, something novel. And a pill could maybe provide you some of that, but certainly worth checking whether there's something healthier that might um, might do the trick. Yep, totally. Okay, well, even my computer has given up at this point. Is that like, You've really... been going on for too long, well, not you. No, I have, but well, it doesn't know. It that. wasn't, yeah, it wasn't specifying. It probably does. <laughs> it probably does. Uh, that, was a, that was long. Uh, we will be back next week, same time, same place. And Same bat channel. Mm. Here we go. Yep. Yeah, it's, it, is. it is all good. And it is all good. I've noticed that. <laughs> Why, given that I said that, would you believe anything else that I say? Oh. I, I have always not liked that phrase. I, people people so, said that back when it seemed like you could plausibly believe that it was all good. And so I was like, it, no, it's not. Yeah. You know that. It's all good does suggest very low standards. Um, yeah. <clears throat> how do you feel about my bad? Oh, I, I mean, we we use that because of ultimate. Yes, right. But I actually yeah. quite yeah. like it. You know, it, it properly relieves somebody oh, of absolutely. the thought that they might have been responsible for something. Yeah. No, that was me. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. All right. Um, well, this was our bad. <laughs> Until we see you next, be good to the ones you love, eat good food, and get outside. Be well, everyone. <laughs>